Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I will be speaking with Anthony Garcia, co-author of Tactical Urbanism, an urban design theory that promotes swift, grassroots-driven changes to the design of our cities. From pop-up parks and guerrilla gardening to temporary street art installations, tactical urbanism embodies the belief that small, incremental changes can lead to profound and lasting improvements in the way we experience and interact with our built environment. But before I start the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Tony Garcia is the co-founder of the firm Street Plans and is considered an expert in the field of placemaking and street design. He has completed over 150,000 square feet of street murals around the country and is one of the most prolific asphalt art muralists in the world. He's the author of the Asphalt Art Guide and serves as the technical advisor for over 30 cities as part of the Bloomberg Asphalt Art Initiative. Tony is the co-author of the globally acclaimed series, Tactical Urbanism, Short-Term Action for Long-Term Change. And he co-authored Tactical Urbanism, published by Island Press in March of 2015. Together with Mike Leiden, he is the recipient of the 2017 Seaside Prize. Thank you for joining On Cities, Tony. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And and you missed also former student from many, many moons ago. <laughs> yeah, now you're going to... When I was when I had just started, right? yeah, there you go. Won't reveal too much of my age, but um, alongside Mike Leiden, you're the founder and the principal of Street Plans, a firm that is dedicated to the design of the public realm. So, Tony, what are the origins of the firm? Uh, that's a good question. I was coming out of grad school. I was working at a new urbanist architecture firm. And Mike was working at DPZ, Duane Plater Zyberg, doing urbanist codes. So we were both working in fields that were related to what we later end up doing. Um, but so during the day, we were doing buildings and codes, and we were friends. Um, but by night, we were both blogging. We had a blog called Transit Miami that was uh, an advocacy blog. So we would um, write letters to the mayor. Uh, bug commissioners about bike lanes and crosswalks and um, thinking about our lived experience in college and and before and how Miami was not where it should be. My, Mike at that time lived in Miami. Um, and we just realized that we liked that more than what we were doing during the day. And around 2007, which is when the sort of Great Recession happened, work dried up, and we intentionally set out to start a firm that was focused on the street because we realized more and more in our work as urban planners, the codes, buildings, all very important to our work. 
But where things kind of fall apart is the space between the buildings. So what does the street look like? How does it function for people? Um, and especially traveling around the, the core of the United States, the, between the coasts, you find that a lot of the, the space that, that gets used up is just for moving cars. And so it was just a natural break from our, our professional activities with our firms to start the firm and, and just focus on, um, on streets and street planning, which is the name of the firm. I mean, I think there's lessons there, obviously, for those who might be listening, but certainly for students of architecture that oftentimes practices begin by casual interactions with individuals that you find, you know, correspondence with, um, and that you, uh, you kind of merge to create uh, something beyond, let's say, an academic experience, certainly, or even maybe an initial internship. So certainly that's the case here. And I guess both of you were politically active, and that's something that um, I think pervade, is pervasive in the work, and we're going to talk more about it. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, all right, so let's turn a little bit to the uh, term tactical urbanism, which, as I understand it, emerged from a 2010 meeting of the Next Gen New Urbanists, um, which is a group that maybe you can tell us a little bit more about. Um, and as I understand it, your partner and co-author, Mike Leiden, coined the term. Is that the case? Yeah. So um, the Next Gen is a, a group or was a group of new urbanists um, who were on the younger side. We were just out of grad school um, and we were just meeting to talk about anything that we wanted to talk about that wasn't being discussed at the the sort of academic new urbanist level, especially at the conferences, the, the Congress of the New Urbanism. Um, so we would have these smaller get-togethers and everybody would be responsible for presenting um, in a forum uh, not dissimilar from this, just with our group. And um, you would bring reflections of your travels as a professional or just anything that you wanted to talk about. And at that time, Again, this is around the time of the Great Recession. So um, we're living here and um, Mike basically is observing, he had just moved to New York actually, observing the the materiality and the, the types of projects that were being implemented under Bloomberg uh, at that time, um, which at that time there was no sort of budget to do major street design projects in New York or really anywhere else. So they were using very low cost, inexpensive things. And there was an article in the New York Times about describing the materiality of Times Square and some of the other projects, and they called it tactical. And, and he sort of pulled that out and said, well, tactical urbanism really um, describes this body of work, which at that time we didn't really know what it meant. We, we Every year as we reflect on our practice, we realize how little we knew at that time of what we were doing or, or what that term actually meant. And now we're backing into a, a more full understanding of it. It had been in use from the 80s to describe another sort of um, moment in the 1960s in Paris um, and the, the relationship between tactics and strategies. So strategy is a, is a, a, a larger scale thought about how you're going to do something and a tactic is how you get to that outcome. Um, but that was very different than what we're talking about. Tactical urbanism, as we understand it, as we describe it to people, is about using short-term, low-cost materials, temporary materials, for a longer-term um, community-building exercise. And you said something interesting in your introduction, which is that it's it's grassroots. It is often grassroots, but it's also um, used by municipalities 
And in, in at that time, it was being used by a ma- one of the major municipalities in the United States, New York City, to recreate or redo one of the premier public spaces in the United States, now premier public spaces. That's Times Square. And Mike was seeing this independent and I, independently of me. We were both observing in our travels all these things happening around the country. I happened to be in New York City on the weekend where they did the test of Times Square. So Times Square for many, many years had been described and, and talked about. Um, there were proposals about converting into a public space. But there's always a reason not to do um, that. So, you know, the Merchants Association would have been an opponent, the Transportation Department, you're going to make traffic in Manhattan terrible. Um, but Bloomberg came along with Janet Sedekan, who was the sort of visionary of our of our field, our subfield, um, and said, well, let's just do a test over Memorial Day weekend with some traffic cones uh, and Kmart chairs and just see how it, how it goes. And I had been to New York my whole life. I went to school in New York. And I never liked Times Square. And I happened to go there. I was with my son that week when we were doing a father-son trip. And it was very little. And we were doing architecture stuff. But the carrot for him was, let's go to uh, FAO Schwartz or Toys R Us in Times Square. And I'll buy you a toy. And we happened to go there. I would never have been there intentionally if it, if not for him. Um, and then I saw these chairs and tables in the middle of the street. And I immediately understood what was happening and... I didn't need a public meeting to tell me. I didn't need a master plan or a design. It was obvious and everybody was using the space. So that paired with the other things that we were seeing led to this creation of the of the term and not only the term, but the whole philosophy. So you were talking a little bit about maybe the events that you were witnessing, right, around you, both as part of the new urbanist movement, but also just from your own empirical evidence and travels. Um, but uh, I've in researching many theories, they don't emerge um, in isolation, right? right? And they, and as you, I guess, become more self-conscious about right. it, you start to search for precedents right. that may inspire you further. And so I can't help but think about um, Jaime, uh, Jaime Lerner's work, uh, which he actually describes it as urban acupuncture. Right. Yeah. And it's his work in Curitiba, Brazil. So I was curious if the work of Lerner also played into your thoughts about tactical urbanism. And for the sake of our audience, if that is the case, maybe you could say a little bit about Lerner and his work there and how that may have influenced your thinking. Sure. So, you know, as I said, I was doing um, this blog, Transit Miami, and my main focus in Transit Miami was transit and how we accelerate transit in Miami without spending billions of dollars and 20 years trying to get things done. So Jaime Lerner's work in Curitiba, he was the mayor, um, of of the city and accelerated and was able to implement a major BRT line. He's basically considered the father of bus rapid transit, where you you take a, a lane of traffic and you create a bus lane and then you create these modular bus stops. So I had known about him already from that work um, and without even knowing any of the context of how fast it happened or um, how inexpensive it was, relatively speaking, um, I knew that there was something about it there. And then peeling back just the history as we were writing the book and, and thinking about how people have done this over time, it's not really a new thing. There's nothing new about it. I mean, the the term tactical urbanism is new, but um, people have been doing that for as long as there's cities. As long as pe- we've created cities, people as as normal individuals have taken it upon themselves to impact the the built environment. 
without any sort of government government intervention. You think only really in the last hundred years or even less with the creation of the corporate entity of the city um, and the, the bureaucracy and the regu- regulatory environment, especially that exists in the United States, that there is a huge separation between people and and what they're able to do in the built environment. Um, you think about the 1920s or the 1900s, the Sears catalog, the bungalows, like that city building on, on a very basic scale, you know, we don't think about that. We, we don't build our houses now. Nobody just chooses a house out of a catalog. Or in the 1970s uh, in Bogota, the creation of the Ciclovia, just closing the street for people to inhabit the street. Simple, right? No expenses. Uh, these are all precedents. Or going back to the 1920s or 10s in New York City, play streets, the use of the street. It, it, has, it, it goes back to how we use the street now versus how we used to use the street. So, you know, we're talking from the University of Miami School of Architecture, um, your alma mater, and and also mine. And we're actually um, here with a group of students. Um, and I'm curious how your training at the School of Architecture um, maybe fits into your work and the ethos of your firm. Uh, I would say it's foundational. And I, I tell people that all the time in presentations, when I'm speaking to students or just normal folks, the education that I got here was central and is core to the work that we do still today. The fact that we have to draw everything, I insist that we draw all the time because that's the only way that you're working through the problem. We do what Victor Dover likes to call propose and dispose. So tactical urbanism is a way of building out prototypes and and getting them out there in the real world, seeing if it works or not. Um, oftentimes it doesn't work, but the the first step, the step zero before that is just drawing out what it is. And part of what connects me back to the university is not just the, the idea that everything starts with the drawing, because it does, um, but also what are you drawing? You're not just drawing the building, you're drawing what happens all around the building. That was day one with George Hernandez and, and Oscar Machado. What's happening adjacent? What is, what, what is your building fitting into? And what are you doing to respond to that context? It comes up every single day in our work. Just yesterday or the day before I was in San Francisco with a group you know, of this size, um, laid out a, a map and drew everything that we were talking about. And it, it blew their mind that somebody was able to still draw in this day and age versus have a whiteboard and, and write a bunch of words. It was real. It was more real to them than any any word on 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 the whiteboard. And so now we can take that drawing, make it real, start to attach costs to to whatever we drew and a timeline. So this, you know, this section of pavement that we're going to take over is going to cost X amount of dollars. You have to talk to public works. This is the way that you do it. Um, and it all comes back to the drawing. Right. That's- yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there is that saying a drawing or picture is worth a thousand words. Um, and I do think that drawing is a medium that connects us across cultures um, because you don't need to speak the same language to be able to understand drawing. And there is a power to the making of drawings. And certainly the School of Architecture here at Miami has always had a, a very important tradition of drawing. I would say analog, which is what you're describing, right, by yeah, hand. Yeah. But also the digital participates in this um, as well. Oh, it's just sure. a, a, an ability to clearly communicate ideas through images. 
Um, but I also think you said something important, which is the relationship between the individual building and the city, right? And oftentimes, I think in um, in the training of the architect today, we're still, I, I think it's an exception here at the University of Miami, but I think we still tend to train architects in a kind of object-focused yeah. way. Um, whereas I think what you're saying is that, yes, you can make an extraordinary singular building, but I think you must always understand the context in which that building takes place so that it can have the most meaningful contribution to really the longer term project, which is the building of the city. So yeah, I think, I think those are two very important points. Um, so let's turn a little bit, or let's return, I guess, to the topic of your work, because you publish a series of online guides that are entitled Tactical Urbanists Guide to Materials and Design. And this research um, assists the public as I understand it, in creating tactical urbanism projects in their own cities. So, Tony, can you share with our audience what exactly are the tools necessary to execute a project um, that you call tactical urbanist sure. or ter- tactical urbanism? So there there are a couple of buckets of, of project types, I would say. There's um, street design-related projects, and that has to do with the geometry of the street how much of the roadway space is given over to cars versus pedestrians and bicyclists and transit users. And then um, there are public space projects. And that could mean converting a parking lot into a park or uh, an underutilized vacant space into a Wynwood Yard or or something like that. Um, And so on on the street side, the there is actually this continuum of materials. This is what we found out going back to the idea that we, we've been uncovering the methodology and, and building the plane as we fly it. Um, initially, and, and what a lot of people associate tactical, tactical urbanism with is pop up very temporary one day things, right? The parklets using chalk to paint things. But in fact, um, we recognize and think about the work that we do in three phases. So the first is demonstration projects, and that is very low uh, investment in in money, political will, the materiality is very, very, very temporary. It's only meant to be there for a month or I mean a, a week or a couple days. Um, then there's pilot project. Pilot projects uh, are slightly more durable, um, require a little bit more political will and thought. Um, and so and then and then interim design, which is the most intense and longest lasting. Um, and at every step of the way, you're spending more money. You're spending, uh, you're you're increasing the durability and the quality of the materials, and also um, the uh, the participation of the public uh, is actually reduced. So the public can really participate for dem- with the demonstration project because the materials are easy. When it comes to interim design, we're bolting things into the ground, we're painting with thermoplastic or or some more intense material. The public does not really participate in that, um, and so. On the, excuse me, on the very inexpensive side, it's tempera paint. It's um, foil-backed tape that that we can buy from Home Depot and just put on the ground and then rip up at the end of the day. It's anything that that you can buy that is meant to last for a day. And and then on the more permanent side, I mean, you see in New York City or or other examples around the country, it's. Um, there's a product called Ruby Glass, which is a, a thick uh, elastomeric sort of pavement coating that normal people can't apply. You know, you have to have this sort of hazmat suit and 
and sprayed on. And one of the challenges that we're finding um, in the work now uh, is that these seemingly temporary projects that were put in in 2008 or 2009 are still in the ground because the, the fundamental problem of the why those projects were put in the ground in the first place, the the lack of resources. So remember, we, we started to see this most um, in 2007, 2008, we had a lot of people going back to cities and living in cities, but then the city resources were not there to support uh, a population that wanted to have bike lanes and better crosswalks and better transit. And so they said, well, we're going to put this stuff in the ground on a temporary basis. And then here we are 18 years later, whatever it is. Um, and they're still in the ground. They're really not meant to be in the ground for that long, but the need is still there. And that's one of the tensions that we're finding in our work, especially with the more interim design, uh, the more intense tactical urbanism. Um, there's no forward compatibility or exit strategy for cities. And um, we're still figuring out how to deal with that and what that's going to mean for cities. So I guess in listening to you, um, these these tools that you're describing, when they're when they are like bought off the shelf, let's say like paint or some of the other examples that you gave, this is where you engage in a community building effort. So you engage the general public, and then when they take on a kind of more permanent, let's say or semi permanent uh, dimension, then the p- materials and their execution become. Uh, more sophisticated for lack of a better right. term. And so there you execute it with your own teams. Or we hire contractors. We hire normal street contractors, people who do this on a regular basis. And your uh, projects are always limited to that space in between buildings, would you say? Because um, again, the name of the firm squarely says street. Yeah. So does that mean that you operate only on the street as uh, the public space par excellence? Or is there... Are there other places that the firm has? No, no. We've done also public spaces. For example, we did a project, um, gosh, I think seven years ago in downtown Miami uh, on Biscayne Boulevard. There are a series of parking lots on Biscayne, right next to, in front of Bayfront Park. Um, And we converted three of them into public spaces for a month in the month of January, 2017, I want to say. And that was through the downtown development authority, the Miami DDA. And um, part of that was, you know, having a, a, a firm, a, a landscape firm donate sod for the month. And then the city of Miami fire trucks would come and water the, the sod. And that sod was just placed on the asphalt. There's no, no other prep to it. And the, the sort of 30,000 foot level here is not, oh, we need more parks. It's, this is what I think a lot of people get wrong about this work is, to differentiate it from guerrilla urbanism, right? I fully support people going out and painting bike lanes and crosswalks. And there's a really cool group in LA that's doing this, um, LA crosswalk collective or something. And they go out in the middle of the night, they're just normal people go out and and paint crosswalks where they've been requested and the city just doesn't do it for whatever reason. Um, That's great. I love that. Uh, What we do is going back to the origins of the, the term, how it fits into a strategy, it's it's got to be part of something that's been thought about already, um, a master plan or some other analysis. The tool of tactical urbanism is really to get at an outcome. It's building up towards something that has been thought about and for whatever reason cannot get off of a, a master plan that's sitting on a shelf somewhere. So 
for example, this example in, in downtown Miami, for many years, they've talked about um, completing the Burley Marks vision for, for Biscayne Boulevard and creating a, a Ramblas type you know, promenade. So, Tony, I don't want to interrupt you, but for the sake of our audience who might not be familiar with Miami, I think you're describing a uh, waterfront section immediately adjacent to the downtown. And, and Miami has a very uh, extraordinary downtown. It's one of the few downtowns that is actually on the water. And there is a uh, large boulevard by the name of Biscayne Boulevard. And the great landscape architect, Burleigh Marx, um, you might want to say what the project was, um, since you're referencing sure. it here, um, just to set the project in context for those that might be less familiar with Miami. Sure. So Biscayne Boulevard, as it, as it enters um, downtown, is, is US-1. So this is the same route that goes all the way up to Maine. And um, I don't remember actually when it was, but sometime... Uh, in the 90s or early 2000s, there's a, a Brazilian landscape architect named Burley Marx who um, uh, had a design for the sidewalks, a very pretty um, wavy pattern, and it only applies to the sidewalks. But this this part of the street is not, it could be deemed our main street in, in many ways, um, but it's a, like eight-lane highway and it feels very disconnected from the waterfront. So you might have 30,000 residents and, and our core business district right adjacent to the, to the waterfront and another sort of premier public space. But most people can't really get there or don't even think to get there because it's a you know 15 or 20 minute walk across a highway. What is a highway? Um, and so the DDA for many years has said, we want to convert these parking lots into a public space that can finish this vision and and stitch together the 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 density and intensity of downtown with the waterfront. And part of the challenge here and and a part of tactical urbanism that we have not discussed, which is the the political side of it, um, is that the parking lots are owned by an entity called the Miami Parking Authority, and they make money off of that land. And so the the control of that public space is in is is central to the why we did this project so um the idea of doing a tactical urbanism project in this location was to test proof of concept do you need that parking what happens when you lose that much parking especially in your downtown core you do not want surface parking in a place where you want public space this, this is something that you don't find in in european cities for example and they, they've gotten away from that since the 60s um and so we did this and almost immediately after putting the sod out and tables and chairs, a lot of, in terms of the materiality you asked about a second ago, this is stuff that we'll find on, you know, Craigslist or, or, you know, buy a hundred chairs for 50 bucks or get people to donate materials. Um, as soon as it was out on the ground, people were using it and, oh my God, this is great. Is this permanent? No, but it's okay. Call your commissioner. Everything we do in the public realm is political. It's not just a design exercise. We can have all the great ideas in the world, but if there's no practical path towards implementation, um, it, it just remains uh, an academic exercise. And so the, at the last day, part of that whole month was programming, also bringing people out, having events there. Uh, one of the plazas, we painted the, the surface as uh, with waves. And the, the iconography of that is that all that land is actually reclaimed land. We're at risk for climate change and sea level rise. Um, 
And so all of these things work together. We also put on-street parking on Biscayne Boulevard, which is part of the long-term plan. So the whole project was testing out elements of a permanent design to show that you can do it. Because all you ever hear as a professional, um, when you propose big ideas like Times Square, is that you can't do that for whatever reason. And what tactical urbanism allows you to do is see in real life, does it work or does it not work? And, And it also makes you as a designer gut check your assumptions, because you know what? We're wrong. We make things up all the time, but so do engineers and so do public officials and that's okay too, but let's make it up and see if it works or not. And then have the humility uh, to be honest about what the outcomes are to get at a better outcome. Yeah. I mean, I love what you said because oftentimes I think uh, big ideas are, are difficult to implement oftentimes because I think it's our human nature to resist change. That's, that's really, yes. you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's rooted in our DNA. <laughs> but I think that what you're saying is that tactical urbanism, since it's under the rubric of temporary, people are willing to say, okay, well, let's try it out, you know, yep. almost like a pop-up installation. Yep. Yep. And then if the effects are profound, then actually you get the 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 public to speak out in favor of it. And then all of a sudden the politicians and those that run the legislative frameworks that make these things possible get behind the project. So I think that's something really interesting. And actually that's something that occurred during the pandemic quite a bit. Oh yes. Because the pandemic obviously changed the way we inhabit cities. The street actually, um, since there were not as many cars because we weren't traversing between that's school right. and work, all of a sudden, you know, restaurants spilled out onto streets. Um, now I know, for example, Ocean Drive, another one of our, you know, you know, waterfront um, drives on Miami Beach is oftentimes closed, you know, not permanently, but oftentimes so that it can be used in different ways. So I think to your point, these kind of temporary solutions, I think, make people more comfortable with testing things out. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, because we're coming to the middle of the okay. episode, because that place you're talking about is still a parking lot. So I'm really curious, like, why didn't that work? Because I was just there yesterday yeah. thinking to myself, this place should be a public space. Yeah. So maybe we'll wait and you'll answer that uh, when we come back. Okay. So we're coming to the middle of the episode. I'm going to continue my conversation with Tony Garcia on the global movement, tactical urbanism, and how short-term changes can make long-standing impacts in the city. Do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Tony Garcia, co-author of Tactical Urbanism, a global movement that advocates for small changes that make long-lasting impacts in our built environment. So just before the break, you were talking about a project that you uh, were working on on Biscayne Boulevard, one of Miami's waterfront streets, transformed the asphalt parking lots that we're so well known for into a more meaningful public space, right? It's still a parking lot. Tony, it is a st- it is still a parking so lot. Tell me why, and All we these- need to do another one of these again. We do, we do. I think one of the things that is important about the work that we do um, that we did not, we were not able to do on that project is get the community to organize and have a voice. So I think you know one thing is the city saying we want to do this, we want to put a little bit of money into it to prove the concept. Um, the other is the political will to actually get it done and especially with something that that is that um big and hairy and and where when money is involved um you just need a a huge amount of momentum and and champions so you've had on your show Meg Daly right so you you need a champion and and the work that we do is really special and important but you also need people in the community who are going to own this that are going to dog the staff and dog the, the the elected officials to get things done. And so what happens with, with Biscayne Green is that um, they say, great, we loved it, great proof of concept, we're going to do another study. And part of the challenge in Biscayne Green is, is that not just that the, the parking authority owns that land, but that FDOT, the Florida Department of Transportation, controls the roadway. And their whole MO is to move cars, move cars as fast as possible, um, and not worry about, you know, what the, how we use streets as public spaces. And that's not just picking on FDOT, that's any state department of transportation in the country. Um, and so on the, on the positive side, they have a methodology or, or a way, a, a permit pathway to remove lanes and convert them into bike lanes and other things. Um, on the negative side, they, they did that study and nothing has ever happened with it. So it, it's either a person or a political figure who should champion this project and will need to. Um, but if you were in one of those parking lots over the weekend, you might have seen, they they painted over it later on. But next time you're out there, see you'll see some 
shapes like scallop shapes on the on in the parking lot and they're they're kind of like filtering through so the project wants to come back to life it's it's finding well, a way you know meg meg daly and yeah. the underline project started with the studio here at the university yeah. of miami yeah. that then gave her the kind of ammunition and the drawings to be able to go out and affect political change and so you know maybe it's serendipitous that you're here and there we're here go. with students we should do this again and figure out a way to make that happen so yeah maybe um, there's a thesis project in the room there, the there may very well be. There may very well be. Um, okay, so you not you have offices throughout the country. You have one in New York, I believe, mm -hmm. and one in San Francisco. Here, one in Miami. Um, so, uh, tell me about another project. I think you were mentioning some work that you're currently doing in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so, how does working on the West Coast differ from working uh, on the East Coast? And mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah. So, the West Coast, not to no one's surprise, is ahead on many things and they fund bicycle pedestrian infrastructure and transit much more than than on the east coast at least in south florida speaking of the southeast um but there's also a, a greater openness and awareness of tactical urbanism and just for clarification on on the the more permanent side of tactical urbanism we call that work quick build tactical for some reason you know, not for some reason, for for obvious reason, it it's um, it throws some people off. You know, we can't use it in some contexts. Um, so, quick build describes the work that is more public works uh, oriented and more permanent. And so, in LA, one of the projects that we worked on, I'll back up. Actually, we did a study for the federal government um, like five years ago, describing the way that transit agencies we're using tactical urbanism to advance um, transit uh, goals. So that might mean interesting bus stops or the design of, of bus lanes and, and other major transit infrastructure in the, in the manner of, uh, you know, uh, Jaime Lerner in Curitiba. Um, and from that study, we, we got a call from a client in, in Culver City, California. And Culver City is a, a really interesting community. It's, it's a, an independent municipality within LA County. So it's not LA proper. Uh, it's where all the studios are, basically Amazon Studios, Sony Studios, Warner Brothers. Um, right in this very small stretch is where Gone with the Wind was made and uh, King Kong, The Wizard of Oz, all the way up until you know things happening today. So on this, at the same time, they have a, a new rail line. Uh, what a lot of people don't know about LA is that they've expanded transit at a, an astonishing pace. This is a sort of um quiet uh win for for transit in the united states is what's happening in la and they have in culver city at expo station they have a new metro rail and a new station and new infill development coming in and culver city historically is like uh, i don't know sort of like medley in in miami-dade county which is a warehouse district um not great land uses a lot of auto-oriented land uses continuous curb cuts no bike lanes no crosswalks um, and it's changed, you know, seemingly overnight over the past 10 years with really new, beautiful infill buildings. They meet the street in the right way, um, but the street still holds its old, uh, its past as a, as a sort of suburban industrial zone. Um, so we were hired to, to basically create uh, bus lanes in their urban core and going out to their neighborhoods one, uh, uh, a mile about a third, 1.3 miles of 
bus lanes. And so what we designed for them was a protected, physically separated bus lane with temporary materials, tactical materials, and also a, a bike lane. Going back to your comment before about the pandemic, part of what made this re, uh, uh, a real project for them um, was that they, during the pandemic, they closed part of their main street, Culver Boulevard. Half of Culver Boulevard was converted into outdoor dining. So we were brought in in the middle of COVID, in the middle of the pandemic, to redesign the street with uh, with bus facilities. Um, and the the bigger context here for 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 your listeners and for the class is that it was a a four lane street, two lanes in either direction with on street parking, and we basically took it down to one car lane in either direction, and everything else was given back over to people walking, biking, or taking transit. So really big deal in Los Angeles, car city, right? Um, and so. The, you know, fast forward part of it was 30,000 square feet of curb extensions, um, a major asphalt art mural. Um, and that was taking space on the roadway that was not being used for any other purpose. Um, and you might see this space on the roadway right now. It's like anywhere you see the the hatch lines on the street, that's fair game for us for asphalt art. We're not asking anybody to get rid of parking or anything. That's good space to, to take over for curb extensions, temporary curb extensions with asphalt art. Um, and so it had asphalt art, bike lanes, bus lanes. We had a, a fabricator make these temporary uh, bus platforms out of teak. Very pretty, very L.A. Um, one of the things about L.A. is that they throw money at these projects. Uh, I mean, you know, that's that's always a, a question. Um, and the idea was that let's test it out see if it works, right? This is kind of revolutionary for them. They had a, an engineer um, who was one of their consultants reviewing the project and he was a very old school dude. And he um, he just, his mind was blown by the things that we were drawing. Um, this is not gonna work, you can't do this. We also, we have a, a bike lane symbol with um, with a ponytail. So, you know, cause the bike lane symbol right now is androgynous you know it's not meant to be gendered but we put a ponytail on it and he sent an email saying that it was woke silliness to put a ponytail on a bike lane symbol but it's just fun right so that was the, the kind of regulatory and review environment that we were in um, and luckily they had a, the political will a mayor who was really into this and and sees the value of livable communities to his tax base you know to, to the residents of the city and a, and a council that was also very supportive um, so we did that. Part of the work involves doing things very, very quickly. So we were under contract in October and we're building the project in November. So in less than a year, so almost a year, we went through design, public engagement design, procurement, and construction of a major public works project at a, at a fraction of the cost of what it would have taken otherwise and and the other part of this that is not obvious, I think, to to your listeners or, or to the classes, we don't move curbs as part of the the tactical work. We work within the curb line, curb line to curb line. So we're not moving sidewalks. We're just saying, how do we retrofit what's there in a temporary way to prove the concept? And then the design exercise is, is fundamentally different. If you're if you're looking at a blue sky tabula rasa, you know what can we do if if nothing's out there? 
But if we're retrofitting things, we're like, how do we save some of this striping? And there's a frugal frugality to the work that we consider when we're designing. Um, and where is that project now? I mean, it was executed. It has it. So where is it now? Yeah. So um, now that the, it was a one year test, we did data collection. Part of the work also involves doing robust data collection to see what works, what doesn't work. Did it have the intended impact? And it was like triple digit increases in bicycling and walking. Um, not such great impact to the to transit. But that that follows a attracts a national trend for transit when it, uh, in in pandemic and post pandemic people stop using transit so and uh, transit usage has rebounded nationally anyway, um, but what happened was that there was a backlash, a bike lash you know to the to the project less so about the bike lanes and more about the bus lanes, and the merchants in particular were very angry, uh, they rightfully we're, we're hurting from the pandemic and and there's also just sort of a generational shift in in consumer preferences and um they blamed it on the bus lane so what happened was they voted out the mayor who was there and voted in a new mayor and um basically there was a, a very contentious commission meeting to decide what to do with the project and what they decided was to reintroduce a bike lane uh reintroduce another travel lane so to to restore the two travel lanes in either direction but to keep the to combine the bus and bike lane and to continue to test it out for another year or two mm -hmm. um, so it it had an intended impact in in terms of a learning it's not what we would have advocated for i mean i drew out the this other version as triage like don't remove the whole project there's mm -hmm. still a lot of space on the road i still see it as a win um but in even in California, in the most liberal blue of places, um, they struggled with the fundamental question of how we address climate change in this country, which is it's a lifestyle thing. We're not going to solve this by not using plastic bags or bamboo straws, right? Like people have to drive less fundamentally. And that's just very hard. It's a generational thing. The baby boomer generation, they they don't see that as being core to the to the challenge, mm. I think. Well, I mean, I think, you, you know, you do speak to how this kind of work, it's not a compromise. It's like finding um, even the smallest of victories towards a shift in thinking about the way our streets are designed, which then brings about, uh, about these larger questions about mobility, um, you know, the amount of parking our cities require. I think it's, you know, it opens up a, you know, far larger question. So I think even the small win is a is a win, you know? I'll take it. Um, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, maybe one more thought about projects, because tactical urbanism is not solely executed in the U.S. In fact, it's become a global movement. Yeah. And um, and I'm curious, you know, there, there are projects in Barcelona, the Superblock mm -hmm. program, but there's also a, a program in Milan, which is Piazza Aperta, which is the piazza, which is the public space and not the street. Uh, and I was curious um, if you could maybe speak a little bit about the European examples of tactical urbanism and you know how they're unique or 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 what they offer that might be a little bit different than the american well i, I would say the the piazza aperte is the the city program that is analogous to the biscayne green project because those those spaces were actually parking lots and a lot of the european cities retired that retired their public parking in favor of a return to public space 
way before Milan. So what, what Milan's done is use asphalt art, especially around schools, to, to accomplish that same goal um, to great success, I think. And they've, they've accelerated it. And they have um, what we lack, what I was saying earlier, which is what is the next step? Communicating that next step to the public, to the elected officials, I think is, is core to it. Having a funding mechanism, um, but just proving the concept that it'll work. There, I think in Milan, it's less about proving the concept that they don't need that parking and more about just getting it done, right? Accelerating that work. Um, Post-pandemic or during pandemic, the big international success story is Paris, right? During the pandemic, they uh, converted a lot of their streets to bike lane streets, open streets, uh, not because of anything other than people weren't using the street, right? But slowly that turned into an intentional shift towards bike lanes and more formal bike infrastructure to the point where they dropped car use in the city down a substantial amount and they're actually building out this infrastructure so it's one of the the huge success stories coming out of covid versus in the united states you've seen a significant going back to the before condition you mentioned ocean drive ocean drive was a great example of what we can accomplish in this country just using the 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 unfortunate event of, of covid to create a, a public space and <clears throat> excuse me it it was a battle almost Im- immediately after as as things started to open up again because all the hotels wanted their car access back without really thinking about what's driving the economic advantage of their location people want to be there because of the beach because of the open space um and not because of the street that's in front and there's there's solutions to that like the side streets you're never within never more than a couple hundred feet away from the entrance to a a hotel and what I would, what I was saying at that time to city staff and to the merchants, like, you go to Rome, you don't go right to the front of the building. You have to roll with your luggage on the cobblestones to the front of the hotel. In a lot of cases, and that's just normal. It's an expectation that people have when they go to a place where they don't want a suburban experience or, or to be oriented only to the car. But speaking of the small wins, you know, the the lasting impact of of that open street experiment on in Ocean Drive is that now we have they carved out half the street for bicyclists and there's a two-way bike lane there now. So again, I'll I'll take that win and if it takes another five years to get the rest of it done, that's that's fine. Yeah. Cities take time, yeah. sometimes generations yeah. to be able to reverse patterns. Uh, previous patterns. So yeah. I, I do think that that's um, important to keep in mind. So we're coming, we're towards, we're coming towards the end of the interview, but I'm curious, we've been talking a lot about the projects and originally um, you talked about certain projects that are more informal and they engage the community, but now you're doing this in multiple offices across, you know, the country. So how, who are your clients? How do you get funding for this work? How do you make it happen? So most of our clients now are cities and and that's actually been the case historically for the for the life of the firm. Um, we have had a lot of uh, nonprofit clients who are trying to get things done from the bottom up, uh, but we have clients that are cities that are trying to get transportation projects in the ground or public space projects in the ground, and either want to do something to accelerate the work or to prove the concept. And that funding comes from cities. There are instances like last year we were working in, in Broward County on a tactical urbanism program that they formalized. They created a program called Be Tactical um, at the MPO level. MPOs are metropolitan planning organizations. 
it's a regional entity that funds transportation projects. And um, we did a project in Fort Lauderdale where the um, the city sponsored a project. And then we had uh, the homeowners association uh, brought out, I think they, they contributed $10,000. Um, and so part of the work was funded from the, at least our labor was funded by the uh, the city and then some of the materials were funded by the community and then some of the materials actually were were funded by a developer who saw the benefit and he said oh can i sponsor the planters we do we use a lot of interesting planters yeah. so it is actually public and private sector uh, funding the best be examples to, are and that yeah. that project is actually going towards permanent construction of now. course yeah yeah there's a synergy there that makes yes. them so we're coming to the last two minutes. So in about a minute or so, I want to know, Tony, what's your favorite city and why? Oh, I don't have a favorite city. I, you know, cities are like my children. I can't choose one. There's there's amazing parts of every city. And, you know, I love our city. Miami is is so special. And I, I've had a love-hate relationship with this place from day one, probably. But it's gotten so much better over the last 20 years, um, thanks to the work of of you know with Liz and Andres with Miami 21 and just it's just grown up a lot um, yeah. so I love our city but I I just love cities in general well yeah. on that we agree I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to yeah, come and join you. us today and to share your stories hoping that it will inspire certainly our students but also the listeners to either engage with you or to think about the small ways that they can make big impacts thanks Tony yeah thank you thank you very much Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 